The cold plunged to minus 55 in Yakutsk, Russia today. For January 2nd, this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Another protest today in Delhi as India continues to grapple with the issue of sexual violence. This writer says sweeping changes in Indian society mean women are much more visible than they once were. They're accessing the public world and they're accessing that small pie of jobs. And men are feeling very threatened and very left out. And later, two very different stories from Finland, one on how the country plans to bury its nuclear waste, the other on the U.S. ambassador to Finland and his ripped biceps. All that's ahead. News is first. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at Medtronic.com, and by Focus Features with the new film Promised Land, starring Matt Damon and John Krasinski, from the director of Goodwill Hunting, in theaters everywhere Friday. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Thousands of women marched through the streets of India's capital today. It was the latest in a string of protests since the brutal gang rape of a 23-year-old student in Delhi last month. The woman died just a few days ago, and the six men arrested for the assault now face murder charges. The attack sparked outrage throughout India, with many demonstrators and other critics demanding a change in the laws dealing with sexual assault. In a moment, we'll get to the latest from India, but first, a voice we haven't heard from yet, the father of the victim. This is what he said to the BBC's Hindi service about his daughter, who, by Indian law, has not been named. My daughter was very adamant on whatever she wanted. I remember asking her once, who are your friends? And she replied, Dad, it's only my books I'm friends with. She always wanted to be a doctor. The reason why we moved from this rural place to Delhi was the need for a better future for our children. The father went on to talk about his daughter's final days. When my daughter was a child, she used to hold me tight and sleep for hours. After the incident, for the first two days, she was unconscious. But when she regained her senses, she asked the doctor to offer her something to eat. She specifically asked for a toffee. The doctor asked her, will you mind a lollipop? She replied, yes. She kept talking to her mother when in hospital. Just a few words, of course. And one day, she held her mother and whispered, Mummy, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The father there of the 23-year-old woman whose rape has sparked a wave of anger across India. We turn now to Jatin Anand, a reporter for the Hindustan Times. Uh, Jatin, there were several protest marches in in Delhi, uh, one we heard earlier, several others as well. What what were all these protests trying to achieve? What they're trying to achieve is something which... uh, the citizens of this country have been demanding for at least the last two years, maybe a substantial change in the laws that govern the punishment of those who abuse the rights of children and women in this country. Uh, there was one protest today at the memorial in Delhi to uh, Mahatma Gandhi. That was a silent protest. Describe what was going on there. Since it was at the Samadhi of Mahatma Gandhi, the father of the nation, who was known for his uh, nonviolent ways and uh, the fact that he showed 
us the way through the freedom movement by not reacting violently there were very violent protests in delhi for the last two weeks have been have seen if not anarchy but complete lawlessness i mean it's hard to know uh jatan if laws will be changed as a result of of this attack um but but politically speaking uh there, i know there's been a lot of dissatisfaction with the government reaction to what happened w- will political heads begin to roll they have started now demanding a joint uh, session of the indian parliament where uh, political parties and leaders from all uh, from all political outfits will sit together and uh, hopefully basically try and change the existing laws that uh, govern the abuse that women and children go through in this country every day what about the suspects behind this attack jat and what's happened to them they caught the main accused ram singh he's a 33 year old uh, bus driver and uh, he was caught along with his brother uh, the other four which include a juvenile this person is uh, 17 and a half years old he'll be 18 at that point in and time tried and tried as an adult and tried as an adult whereas all the others are in uh, west delhi's tihar jail which is uh, one of the biggest jails in in asia they're lodged in different barracks because the jail authorities fear a backlash at any given opportunity that their co-inmates might have of getting back at them and just punishing them with the all the rage that they have all the rage that the execution of this uh, crime has evoked in everybody irrespective of whether they're behind bars or just the general public right and and you've been to the community where the accused men are from what's been the reaction there we've been there me and a colleague we've been there several times we went there when uh, the news broke out when we realized when we were told by our sources in the police and by the delhi police per se that they belong to a slum cluster which is called the ravidas uh, slum cluster in uh, in delhi it's got bits of delhi's poshness in it and it's got uh, to balance it out it's got uh, a slum where uh, citizens like drivers bus conductors the housemaid and and fruit sellers gym instructors uh, this is the community that these people come from how did the people in that slum react when you you asked them how they felt about these men who had come from their neighborhood and were now arrested they were angry as far as their uh, reaction towards the accused was concerned as far as their individual feelings about these men were concerned they were very angry and they were vocal about the fact that they had been shamed in fact many elders whom we talked to they were fearing how they will introduce the families of the future grooms of their daughters to their house to the rest of their extended families because it's such a close knit community that i mean you know it's it's one of those typical indian communities where everybody knows everybody else and everybody is uh, is very close knit as far as the community uh, goes they were aghast they went from disbelief to dissatisfaction to being utterly angry at the fact that these children grew among them and they were with them for the longest time and uh, for them to be told that they had done something as heinous as uh, brutalizing a woman to the extent that they did was enough to just make them very very angry That was Jatin Ananda, reporter for the Hindustan Times in Delhi. Also in Delhi is feminist writer and publisher Urvashi Butalia. She says the roots of violence against women in India are intertwined with conflicts about class, caste, and the rapid pace of globalization. There is a way in which tradition has very, very deep roots and it assigns women a secondary place. And then the coming in of the nation state and a whole set of values of egalitarianism which didn't necessarily easily fit this society. And I think what's happening today is that 
you know, one, you're seeing uh, the phenomenon of urbanization. A lot of people moving to urban areas in search of jobs, in search of a change in their lives. And secondly, you're seeing a massive and very speeded up process of globalization. For example, with the freeing up of the media, you see an expression of women's sexuality like you never had before. You see young people socializing because of shopping malls and other places in urban areas, which you never saw before. You see young women stepping into urban jobs. This is also a very new phenomenon. You didn't see it before. And I think all of these things are creating a real churning in the society. And you don't only see it in violence towards women. You mm. see it in a general increase of violence of all sorts. Like what, for example? What are well, some of like the other... if you, I, I mean, I imagine if you look at the rate of murder and street violence, road rage, all of those, I think, are increasing. And they're a sign of uh, widening gaps in our society between the rich and the poor, which have largely been created because of, um, you know, the coming in of new kinds of jobs, really highly paid jobs and so on. I think also because in I'm talking now especially about urban areas, women, young women stepping out into the kinds of jobs that they never did before, such as sales girls, security guards, taxi drivers, they're accessing the public world and they're accessing that small pie of jobs. And men are feeling very threatened and very left out. I mean, a lot of people have talked about this kind of split between the old India and the new India. I mean, what do you make of that discussion? It, it just seems so facile to say the old can't keep pace with, you know, the culture of the new India. Well, I think the new India, whatever that is, is spreading quite fast into the old India. So, you know, you can't, for example... Uh, go to small towns any longer and not see a large or several large shopping malls in there. A lot of outsourcing centers now for reasons of uh, economy are located in smaller towns. There's a tremendous amount of migration in search of jobs and as a result of climate change and so on that's happening all over India. I think the lines between the old and the new are in one sense getting blurred but in another sense, becoming sharper because the divides are becoming so much sharper. The inequalities are becoming much more visible. So when we talk about solutions to this and how you change mindsets, it's not so simple as to just take your foot off the globalization accelerator. How do you get to the root of this? The protests, I think, will result in some changes, uh, all of which are necessary, none of which is sufficient. So we will see fast-track courts, we will possibly see changes in the law and all of that. Mm. But they won't necessarily address the root of the problem. And I think that can only be addressed in a much wider way with things like education, a more inclusive media with state policies and so on. A lot of the time we say changing mindsets is really difficult. But the speed with which globalization has changed mindsets makes me feel that it's possible mm. and that it can be done. I mean, if Coke and Vodafone can reach every village in India, why can't state policies, why can't governance, why can't the sort of changes that this society really needs? There has to be a will behind that. The government in India has formed various committees and investigations uh, in the wake of this tragedy. Uh, But it seems uh, as though not one of these panels actually includes activist women. Would that make a difference? I think that would make a huge difference. See, on the committee, the Justice Verma Committee, which they set up, which has to provide a report on possible changes in the law in 30 days, 
there is one woman on it, and she is a very well-known, very well-respected ex-judge, retired judge. But it really needs someone with an involvement in the women's movement, with a history of looking at changes in the law and their impact in society. Aren't there any not... female politicians who kind of oh, come yes. out of that tradition? The many. I mean, there are, for example, the additional solicitor general of India is a woman lawyer extremely well-known senior and with a 40-year involvement in the women's movement. Mm. She would have been the obvious choice, but they didn't take her in. There are any number of other uh, women lawyers of similar stature, ex-judges, but they didn't put them in. And that's a real loss, I think. Urvashi, do you feel like you really get what this sexual violence against women in India is all about? I mean, what really causes it. It's such a level of brutality. And why is the response this time so forceful? Sexual violence, as far as I'm concerned, is not about sex, really. It's about power. It's very difficult to give simple explanations, but it comes from a very, very deep-rooted inegalitarianism. This is a very hierarchical society. You know, the caste system is still in place in many parts of India. Feudal relations still exist despite a huge amount of agrarian reform and despite industrialization and so on. So these things ensure that the inequalities remain. And it's not only violence against women. You see violence against people of lower castes, against Dalits. You see violence against minorities. Urvashi, any final thoughts? It's a moment of uh, you know, possible change, and that kind of moment comes rarely. That's really important. And if that happens, then at least, you know, there'll be some way of honoring that young woman. Writer and publisher Urvashi Butalia, she's the co-founder of Kali for Women, India's first feminist publishing house, and now directs Zuban, an imprint of Kali. Urvashi, thank you for your thoughts on this. Thank you very much. This is PRI Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, advancing access to health care through global philanthropy. Learn more in the Medtronic 2012 Philanthropy Report online at MedtronicFoundation.org. And by Focus Features with the new film Promised Land, starring Matt Damon and John Krasinski from the director of Goodwill Hunting in theaters everywhere Friday. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Day two of 2013, and I've already broken one of my resolutions. I can't imagine making a resolution that has to last for the next 100,000 years. That's essentially what scientists in Finland are doing, though, only they're not dealing with body weight or flossing teeth. Finland is trying to figure out what to do with all its nuclear waste. The stuff will be toxic to all life forms for the next 1,000 centuries. So the big question for the Finns is how to keep humans now and on into the far future from coming into contact with this deadly waste. Kavita Pele reports from Finland. A mere 30 to 40,000 years ago, Neanderthals were still roaming Europe and leaving their mark in caves across the continent. To the cave we modern humans now return for an unprecedented mission to protect the future from our toxic nuclear present. Now, yes, now it clicked, and now it can come. Welcome, now we are inside Onkalo construction site. Onkalo means cavity in Finnish, and it's the name of a sprawling man-made underground complex in rural southwestern Finland. This three-mile-long tunnel follows a loose spiral that burrows a quarter-mile deep into the nearly two-billion-year-old bedrock. Once completed, the $4 billion project will be the world's first permanent storage facility for high-level nuclear waste. 
Or at least that's the hope. Man has walked on the earth for 150,000 years. And we're trying to build something that is going to be safe for 100,000 years. So that's almost the length of man's history. Antti Jotsen is a geologist with Posiva, the company in charge of the project. Finland currently gets 25% of its electricity from nuclear energy, with more nuclear plants in the works. And the waste from the industry includes highly radioactive substances like uranium and other materials used for nuclear fuel. Scientists like Jotsen spend their days trying to figure out how to protect thousands of tons of this nasty stuff from Mother Nature for the next 100 millennia. Possible threats include groundwater intrusion, earthquakes, and even glaciers. And then there are questions about the storage technology itself. Here's Jekki Harkinen from Greenpeace Finland. When we see polls about why people might be opposed to nuclear power, usually the most common reason is the final disposal of nuclear waste. And we have been worried that the companies which are building Onkalo might have an incentive to hurry the process without actually having the technology to go through it. The technology includes 16-foot copper canisters to hold the waste itself. The canisters will be buried in holes at the bottom of the tunnel, and the holes will then be filled with a special kind of clay to prevent movement and corrosion. But in late December, Swedish researchers reported that the copper canisters at the heart of this system may only last 1,000 years, just a tiny fraction of what's needed. Posiva maintains that their technology is sound, but even if it can hold up as hoped, there's another problem. We recognize that this could happen, that you might find and open Onkelo. In fact, we consider you the main threat to the safety of Onkelo. That's an excerpt from Into Eternity, a 2010 documentary about Onkelo by Danish director Michael Madsen. Madsen addresses viewers as though they are the people of the future and asks some of the profound questions that arise out of efforts to store a deadly substance for 100,000 years. For instance, there's no way to know whether future people will be more or less advanced than us. They may not speak the same languages that we do. They may be more different from us than we are from the Neanderthals. So, what's the best way to keep curious humans of the future from intentionally or accidentally digging up the waste? Lasse Koskinen is a research coordinator at POSIVA. After a few generations, all those people that were involved in this project have passed away long time. It's not easy to actually even to decide whether those new generations, whether they should be aware of it. After all, the Egyptians built the pyramids and then warned us not to enter them. And weren't Adam and Eve cautioned about that apple? Nothing intrigues our species more than a sign saying, don't go there. So what to do? The last of the waste will enter Onkelo more than 100 years from now, so Lasse Koskinen's 22nd century counterparts will make the final decision on what to do with Onkelo. But the current plan is to backfill the tunnels, demolish the surface facilities, and try to make all traces of what was here disappear altogether. Standing outside Onkolo on a frigid December afternoon, Posiva information officer Helena Urpalati paints this picture of the repository's future. Here is the entrance to Onkolo. In 110 years, you would still see this Onkolo because the end of this project will be uh, in 2120. But if you come here in uh, 150 years, there will be just a uh, flat ground and after 2,000 years, it's only forest. If all goes according to plan, future people will never know what lies below this forest. And if not, well, 
Onkolo may confound our descendants way more than the last traces of the Neanderthals mystify us today. For the world, I'm Kavita Pillay. Explore the future home of Finland's nuclear waste. We have a slideshow from Onkalo at theworld.org. And we stay in Finland for a couple more minutes to report that American diplomacy there has never been stronger. That is, if the bulging biceps of the U.S. ambassador to Finland are the gauge. Bruce Aurek, former attorney and former Obama fundraiser, took up his post in 2009. That last name might be familiar. He's the son of David Aurek, the vacuum cleaner manufacturer. As a diplomat, Bruce Orex focused heavily on environmental issues, and for Christmas, the nearly 60-year-old Orex posted this on YouTube, seated alongside his wife, Cody. Hi, it's a beautiful, snowy December day here at Embassy Helsinki, and Cody and I, on behalf of the entire staff, want to extend our warmest holiday greetings to you and your families. Friends like to say that Orex's big personality is matched only by his arms. See, he's a former professional bodybuilder. Pro Body Magazine, a Finnish bodybuilding monthly, got Orek to pose for its latest issue. The ambassador stands on the cover, eyebrow raised, with one arm of his suit ripped away to reveal one ripped bicep. Talk about gunboat diplomacy. Anyway, a spokesman for the U.S. Embassy in Helsinki assured the Washington Post that no photoshopping was involved at all. The ambassador, the spokesman told the Post, places tremendous emphasis on staying in shape. Not prone to shyness, apparently. The ambassador also used one of the muscle shots in a holiday gag card to close friends. We should also note that this isn't the first time Orex flexed his muscles for the Finnish media. A while back, he posed completely shirtless for another Finnish magazine. The title of that photo shoot was Mr. America. Well, as Frederick the Great, the former king of Prussia, once quipped, diplomacy without arms is like music without instruments. You can check out Bruce Orek's Muscular Symphony at theworld.org. We've got photos of that now famous, at least in Finland, bicep. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, why an Egyptian satirist is in trouble with the Islamist government of President Mohamed Morsi. He held up this red furry pillow with a picture of Morsi printed on it, mm. and he sweet-talked the pillow, he hugged the pillow, he sang to the pillow. And later, one scientist's love affair with sea slugs. Yep, sea slugs. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report. Online at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. There's no love lost between the Islamist government of Egyptian President Mohamed Morsi and his critics in the media. The latest proof of that is an official investigation launched this week against a popular Egyptian TV satirist. Bassem Youssef allegedly insulted President Morsi on his TV show. The program is modeled after Jon Stewart's Daily Show, and Youssef was actually a guest on The Daily Show last June. Okay, can I ask a question? Yes, yes, yes. Last week, did you have Catherine Zeta-Jones here? Catherine Zeta-Jones was in your seat, sir. In this seat? Your very wow. seat. <laughs> Youssef could be in serious trouble with the Egyptian government. An Islamist lawyer claims Youssef insulted President Morsi by putting the leader's image on a pillow and mocking his speech style. (laughs) 
Noel King is in Cairo and has been following the story. Noel, what did Yusuf say or do in the skit we just heard a bit from? Well, essentially what he did was he pretended to be an ardent supporter of President Mohamed Morsi. He said, you know, President Morsi understands us better than we understand ourselves. He can tell us many things that we don't know. And as you say, he held up this red furry pillow with a picture of Morsi printed on it. Mm. And he sweet talked the pillow. He hugged the pillow. He sang to the pillow. And so what this Islamist lawyer says is that, in effect, what Bassem Yusuf was doing was he was undermining the president's authority by mocking him in such a public way. And there were complaints about that bit. It would seem tame by the Daily Show standards. Uh, What irritated those critics so much? Well, you know, people like Bassem Youssef, satirists, and he is among the most successful, have been locked into this sort of cultural stalemate for a couple of months now. President Morsi's supporters say that his opponents are un-Islamic, that they're disrespecting both religion and the president's authority. And his critics say, look, we're a democracy now. We have freedom of speech. This is a guy who's in power and we have every right to criticize him. What Yusuf does is he uses a particular brand of Egyptian humor, very cutting, very sarcastic, and very trained on people who they say are saying one thing and doing another. They have a tendency to really enjoy going after people they identify as hypocrites. Now, ever since President Mohamed Morsi gave this decree on Thanksgiving night, which awarded himself new powers, Bassem Youssef has been going after him. So it's a real back and forth, and it has been for a few weeks now. Mm, And we've got a really good example of that, where, you know, Bassem really kind of steps out of that character in response to the critics. Let's have a listen to that. النظام السابق كان بيقول انتم ضد الوطن دلوقتي بيقولوا انتم ضد الشريعه ما عادش حد بياكل من الكلام ده خالص So what he's saying here is the old regime used to say you're against the nation. Now they say you're against Sharia. Well, nobody's buying that anymore. He continues to stop playing with people's sympathies or saying that whoever opposes you or exposes you is against Islam. Islam, he says, is bigger and better than what you are putting out in its name. The religion you're giving us, we don't know it. That's pretty powerful stuff, Noel King, and I guess pretty brave considering the risks. It is. And it was a very striking moment because the thing that you must realize is that Bassem Youssef spends most of his time on television in character. He is this guy who makes jokes. He mugs at the screen. He's a mix of Jon Stewart and Stephen Colbert and that you always expect him to be joking. So for a figure like this, who is so popular and so widely viewed, to come out on television and say, you know what, I'm a Muslim too. And it doesn't make me a bad Muslim to want to criticize the president. And we do not have Sharia law in Egypt. And I am following the law and I have the right to freely express myself. So in some ways, I think what that did is it expanded his support base a little bit. It gave people the idea that this guy isn't just a jokester. He's somebody who does take freedom of expression very, very seriously. And he's somebody who, on top of that, considers himself to be a very devout Muslim. So explain something to me, Noel. It was an Islamist lawyer who filed the complaint against Bassem Yusuf in the first place. Is that how that works? I mean, the government didn't kind of pursue him for prosecution? This This is a very interesting and odd bit of Egypt law. So President Mohamed Morsi, for the most part, when he is criticized by people like Bassem Youssef, he generally stays out of it. But what you find in Egyptian law is that basically anybody, any individual can go to the public prosecutor and say, this person has slandered the president. This person has blasphemed. And then the prosecutor general can choose to accept the case. Now, what we've seen over the past couple of months with the prominence and the rise of political Islam is we've seen a whole slew of Islamist lawyers 
lawyers taking these kind of complaints to the public prosecutor. They've tried to have indicted everyone from media personalities to government critics to cultural critics to artists and writers. And in some cases, they've been successful. This is not the first issue in which Basim Youssef has faced criticism. It remains to be seen whether or not he's going to be prosecuted. And that will give people, I think, some idea of which direction Egypt is moving in, a more open society or a more restricted society. Noel King in Cairo, thanks for giving us this update on Bassem Youssef. Thanks for having me. You can see Bassem Youssef's daily show-like program with subtitles and watch his star turn as a guest on John Stewart's program. That's at theworld.org. Jordanians have been watching closely what happens in Egypt. For them, the events there have been both exhilarating and a cautionary tale. So far, Jordan's King Abdullah has mostly fended off demands for internal change. He's done that in part by paying for a string of public works projects. But Jordan is facing a deepening financial crisis and more public protests. The world's Matthew Bell reports from Amman. The latest chapter in the story of Jordan's economic troubles is about gas. That jingle isn't from the ice cream man. It's a truck delivering metal gas canisters door to door. Gas is widely used here for cooking and heating people's homes. And here's the problem. Over the years, Jordan got used to cheap government-subsidized fuel. Then about six weeks ago, the price shot up by 50%. Sitting behind the wheel of his gas delivery truck, Abdullah says business is way down. People are cutting back on gas. Families who used to buy 10 canisters per month are only taking two or three now, he says, and they're asking about buying on credit instead of paying up front. What's especially troubling for Jordan is that the country has long been praised as a bastion of Middle East progress and stability. It's got one of the freest economies in the region, a strong middle class, and impressive infrastructure compared to some of its neighbors. But the kingdom is facing some real challenges. Jordan has a shortage of natural resources, especially water, and a shortage of jobs. More than 70% of the population is under 30, and the economy needs to create 120,000 jobs a year just to maintain the current level of employment. Add to all that skyrocketing energy prices. In large part, that's because the pipeline bringing cheap gas from Egypt has been repeatedly attacked. Jordan's deficit has ballooned as a result, And when you ask Jordanians, they say they're under real pressure. There is people living in a really, really hard way. Everything is going wrong in the economy. 25-year-old Raed Abu Zaid has two jobs. He works retail at a bookshop and helps run the computer system at a pharmacy. He's putting himself through university, but he says at this point he's planning to leave the country after he graduates. Where will you go? Whatever. I don't care. Whatever. In a place that I can live that I can work like from eight till nine hours and after that like I can I can spend in a good way now I'm not looking to buy a Lamborghini or a Maserati or a Ferrari but I'm living like a normal way that's it middle class yeah middle class life but here you can't live the middle class life here you can't that kind of frustration has fueled recent demonstrations in Jordan some have turned into riots and there are fears that anti-government protests could escalate as prices keep going up Madian Al Jazeera owns a few businesses, including this hip cafe restaurant in Amman. He says his electricity bill has doubled in recent weeks. Business has dropped by about 20 percent, and unsurprisingly, people are frustrated by one thing in particular. The root of all of the problem of Jordan is corruption. You don't need to be smart. 
you know, people marching out in the streets, it's all about corruption. It's the people who are paying for it. Al Jazeera says Jordan hasn't erupted like some of its neighbors because there are relatively more freedoms here than other parts of the Arab world. And people also worry about the costs that come with revolution. When you see what's going on in the other countries, you think, you know what? <laughs> I'd rather have a stable country where there's security and rather than live that. And I think a lot of us here, deep inside, you know, we want a better Jordan, but we, we're kind of afraid of the consequences because it's clear what could happen. It's campaign season in Jordan right now. Parliamentary elections are scheduled for the end of January. Candidates are promising to fight corruption, create jobs, and fix the economy. But there doesn't appear to be much confidence that real economic reform is imminent. Not too long ago, King Abdullah opened up the elections process to more political parties. The intent was to bolster the democratic process. But now 60 parties and more than 800 candidates are running for 27 national seats. Analysts say that makes it next to impossible for the most serious candidates to rise above the fray, let alone make real progress on fixing what ails Jordan's economy. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell, Amman. We stay close by for today's GeoQuiz, and we're on a hunt for sea slugs. These aren't your garden variety slugs in dull shades of beige. These slugs are, shall I say it, fabulous. They're all done up in bright greens, yellows, and shimmering golds with flecks of electric blue. You can find them in a biblical body of water that stretches between northern Africa and the Arabian Peninsula. This marine biologist says the water is clear without sediment. There are fish everywhere. There are sharks everywhere that generally leave you alone. Lots of corals. Lots of anemones, lots of sponges. And lots of sea slugs. We'll take a closer look at those fashionistas of the sea when we come back with the answer in just a bit. In Venezuela, many New Year celebrations didn't happen. Events were canceled because of President Hugo Chavez's uncertain health. The Venezuelan leader is in Cuba recovering from his fourth cancer operation. Officials back home describe his condition as delicate. Chavez is supposed to be sworn in for a new six-year term in office on January 10th, but that may not happen as planned. Julia Swag monitors Latin America at the Council on Foreign Relations. She says the region is rife with speculation about Chavez's health and his swearing in. I did see one news item suggesting that perhaps some Supreme Court justices from Caracas would fly to Havana and swear him in at his bedside. But I think there's a constitutional problem with that. So really, it's anybody's guess. But it doesn't seem like he'll be able to appear in person if, in fact, he is sworn in. And that opens up a whole kettle of worms in terms of succession and the constitutionality of the different options. Swearing him in on what might very well be his deathbed in Havana seems pretty extreme. Is Venezuela's opposition poised to accept this? No, I don't think so. The more likely scenario than the bedside swearing in is a constitutional and legal request to postpone the inauguration and call for new elections within 30 days. That's what there seems to be a consensus around that is, in fact, a viable option if if January 10th won't fly. The leading U.S. State Department official for Latin America, Roberta Jacobson, recently had a long phone conversation with the man Chavez has designated as his heir. That's uh, Vice President Nicolas Maduro. Can we expect a thaw in relations with Washington if uh, Maduro takes over? 
I think it's reasonable to assume that Washington and Maduro and Caracas want that sort of thing. And Maduro's political base is complicated. You know, he's not Chavez. So will we see domestically Chavismo without Chavez, but a sort of softer approach in terms of international relations? If that's the case, I do think uh, there'll be a bit of political goodwill for a thaw on both ends. What is the strategy of the opposition in Venezuela to come back if they want to? In October, the national elections that took place, obviously Chavez won. But what happened for the first time among the opposition is they were unified around one candidate, Enrique Cabriles, who had on his agenda not really an anti-Chavez focus so much as he figured out that he had to focus on the issues that Venezuelans themselves care about and that poor Venezuelans who have become Chavez's base care about. Now, he lost, but he ran a respectable campaign. And just earlier this month, governor's races around the country, the Chavista parties took almost every single state but the state of Miranda, where Capriles won. Now, that gives him a psychological leg up in terms of staying on top of the effort to unify the opposition and to run again. However, if there is, in fact, another election soon, that is within the next several months of 2013, it's not clear to me that the Chavez machine won't again put Maduro in power despite a stronger opposition candidate. Mm, That is a strong machine. Let me ask you about another place in uh, Latin America, Cuba. What do you think is in store for U.S. relations with Cuba this year? I mean, if John Kerry, as it's expected, takes over from Hillary Clinton at the State Department, how would that shake things up for Havana and Washington? Well, I'd like to say it would open many doors to a thaw on that front as well. But I'm skeptical for a couple of reasons. One, Cuba's succession, that is the transition from Fidel to Raul, and then the number of domestic reforms taking place on the island have happened very stably, very calmly. There's been no crisis there. And that has reinforced the sort of political inertia in the United States to keep the status quo of the embargo in place. Now, Obama was reelected with almost 50% of the Cuban-American vote in Florida, which presumably would give him some political running room to go forward with a a significant rapprochement opening policy toward Havana. But John Kerry is going to be in charge of dealing with many crises around the world, as Hillary Clinton was, having Bob Menendez, the Democrat of New Jersey, now becoming the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Menendez is Cuban-American. He cares passionately that no change happened while the Castros are alive. So despite the openings on the ground, I'm not sure that'll translate into political will in Washington. Julia Swig at the Council on Foreign Relations. Her latest book is called Cuba, What Everyone Needs to Know. Thanks a lot, Julia. It was great to be here. Thanks so much. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Now, about the sea slugs we promised you in today's GeoQuiz, we were searching for a clear body of water that's sandwiched between northern Africa and the Arabian Peninsula. The answer is the Red Sea. Scientist Natalie Yanov studies Red Sea slugs with a team at Swansea University in Wales. Yanov's love affair with the sea slugs started when she was 12 on a school field trip. She and the others were assigned the task of identifying different kinds of marine life. And the only things I could identify were sea slugs. Nobody else could identify them. I can't imagine why. Yeah, so the class would give me all their sea slugs, and that was it. I was away. And that fascination has evolved into a lifelong pursuit. I loved the identifying, the sort of 
detective work? You know, is it an old species that somebody described 100, 200 years ago? Is it new? And then you have to prove it. And Yanov has identified several new species. If she had to pick a favorite, she said she'd choose the Nembrotha megalocera from the Red Sea for its wild colors. Blues and purples, yellows and blacks, it's just incredible. It's got great big black horns, hence the name megalo in Greek means big. Cirrus are the, the horns. Yeah, it's spectacular colors. Yanov says she once nearly lost it trying to bag one of those slugs. I found it by accident. I was hanging off the edge of a reef. It was a drop-off and was trying to put it in my bag. There were sharks everywhere and I was on this absolute cliff face thinking, oh my goodness, I really don't want to fall off this coral. Just drop down to deep black yonder. And um, the thing started swimming. And that was just like, oh my goodness. you know. And of course, I fell off my coral trying to catch it. Sharks everywhere and thinking, oh dear, oh no, this is not going to happen. But I got it eventually. Swam back up and heaved a sigh of relief. The sharks yeah. left me alone. Yeah, well, you can check out some photos of these amazing sea slugs without risking life and limb. And these pics don't slip. We have a slideshow at theworld.org. Street musicians perform in cities all over the globe. Most play music for a living, but few have the chance to reach audiences beyond their street corner. Marlon Bishop reports on a street musician from Sierra Leone who's cultivating an American audience with a little help from the Internet. Every morning, Sori Kondi straps on a portable amplifier and heads out into the streets of Freetown to play his Kondi, a kind of thumb piano from Sierra Leone. He's played every day for the last 36 years, giving him plenty of time to work on his technique. I can't speak for anyone else. Maybe they haven't been discovered. But I can say I'm the best because of all the efforts I've made. It isn't easy being a street musician in Sierra Leone, especially if you're blind. All day long, Sori has to worry about navigating heavy traffic and poorly maintained roads, not to mention stingy listeners. Still, he says, he's happy to have a trade that doesn't rely on his vision. Well, me, we have a small one. We, I don't get sense now. When I was little, there was no work for me to do in my village. My family felt sorry for me and took care of me. But luckily, God gave me the talent to do something in this world. Not wanting to be a burden to his family, Sori left for the capital, Freetown, at age 17 in hopes of supporting himself with his music. Sometimes he leaves the city and travels from town to town, tapping into new audiences. Along the way, he's gathered lots of material for the songs he writes. They offer bits of wisdom and stories he's picked up on the road. We are people there, look at together. This tune tells the story of his experience during the 1999 invasion of Freetown by rebel forces during the Civil War. Because of his blindness, Sori was left behind when others fled the city. He survived the three-day assault without access to food or water. Today, Sori is in his 50s, and he wants to step it up a notch. A few years back, he befriended an American living in Sierra Leone named Luke Wasserman. Wasserman helped Sori record an album called Without Money, No Family, and released it on the internet. Hey, 
Wasserman also helped Sori set up an internet fundraising campaign on Kickstarter. The goal was to get him to the U.S. They raised $3,500, not a kingly sum, but Wasserman says there were enough contributors to pay for a plane ticket to the States. And then there was a whole lot of people that I didn't even recognize their names. I don't know where they come from and, and how they knew about Sori Kondi, but that's just the power of social media and and word of mouth. Which brings us to Brooklyn. I like a speed. I like speed. Faster? No, let go. This is Sori playing his kondi in the bedroom studio of Boima Tucker, a 31-year-old DJ from New York, whose family is from Sierra Leone. Tucker organized Sori's East Coast tour this fall. Now, they're rehearsing for an upcoming concert, mixing Sori's music with electronic beats for a hip venue in Brooklyn. Tucker says working with Sori is a natural fit because they share a do-it-yourself ethos. I think we have a lot more in common than somebody like a big world music artist. And I think that's the important thing to recognize is that our similarities, even though his is an acoustic stripped-down music, we're both artists that are kind of self, you know, self-managed in a lot of ways. After the tour, Sori returned to Freetown, where he's back to busking. But his trip to the States has left him fired up to continue growing as a recording artist. There's an audience in America for my music. That'll allow me to take care of my family back home. It'll allow me to pay for my children's school fees. With the support I receive here, I can finally do something for my family. He might be on to something about having an audience in the States. Boima Tucker's indie record label will be releasing Sori's new album in the coming year. It's full of driving beats and digitally altered vocals, delivering a taste of Freetown dance floors to the U.S. For The World, I'm Marlon Bishop. A grooving transatlantic story there. And just how do you play a Condi thumb piano? We have a video of Sori demonstrating his mastery. That's at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman, tweeting at Marco Werman, or follow the program at PRI The World, and join us again tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org. The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org and by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.